0: Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com And you might just hear an answer on our next series.
1: You're not flawed. You're not broken. Um, Something happened to you. Something real happened to you. And it changed the very way your brain was developed. And you can not only heal from that, you can actually flourish.
0: In this week's episode, we're exploring the question, How does trauma impact our brains? We're excited to introduce you to therapist Terrence Smith. Terrence has been working in the trauma and addiction field for almost a decade, and in this conversation, we dive into the deep end and explore how traumatic experiences rewire and impact our brains. Y'all, this is a fascinating conversation, so make sure that you're ready to take some notes. We all know about fight or flight, but Terrence is going to help us understand the automatic response our bodies and brains go through and some of the trauma treatment methods that can help us heal and find wholeness. Christopher, what did you love about this episode?
2: I, first of all, I really liked how Terrence sort of broke it down mm-hmm. and explained it simply. But I think my biggest takeaway is how resilient uh, the brain is. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, healing is possible. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to understand how trauma impacts the brain, but how it, you know, with with the proper care like people can move forward and heal.
0: I think what I took away is just how intricate our brain is and how it is wired. Uh, without us having to do anything to protect us and to help us find safety. And I think you even talk about it in the episode. Like sometimes we wish it wasn't so good at doing its job Mm -hmm. uh, because there are negative effects of it constantly looking for safety. Um, But it was a really normalizing conversation for me when I think about maybe how I responded in different situations to know that my body was taking the path that was the easiest and most safe.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So. So I hope that people just really feel like permission and maybe even if they've been carrying guilt about how they responded in a specific situation, that this might offer them a different lens.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, stick with us as we explore this question on this week's episode of Treating Trauma. (laughs) Welcome to the Treating Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt.
2: And I'm your host, Christopher O'Reilly. Join us for a limited series of conversations with trauma experts and world-class clinicians for Milestones, a one-of-a-kind, holistic, and specialized residential trauma treatment experience.
0: Together, we'll explore how unresolved trauma from our past can disrupt and block us from being the person we want to be. <music> Terrence, I'm so excited to sit down with you. Mm, likewise. Mostly, I just really want to get to know you. I feel like it's a really good excuse. I um, have been ancillarily around you, and so now sure. I get to talk to you, which will be Therap- so fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you get into the therapy space? Let's just start there.
1: Well, actually, I wanted to be a therapist when I was a little kid. Actually, I was pretty certain of it, but my father, being a school teacher, thought that wasn't a good profession to make money, so Something he sent more practical. me. Practical. Yeah, so he sent, told me I should go to business school. So that's what I did. So. After following that path, well, following his path, um, I actually burnt, got crashed and burned. And so I had an opportunity to do what I wanted to do. So started over, went to school, and there you have it.
0: That's mm-hmm. wild. Mm-hmm. As a kid wanting to be a therapist, did you have context for what a therapist was?
1: I'm going to date myself a little bit. So I grew up with Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. But my parents were school teachers. So that was that's how I passed the time. Mm. So I went. I was always thinking about stuff. And so one day I pulled out the P and I landed on philosophy first. And I'm like, oh, somehow this oddly makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I read about Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. And that was the first thing I presented to my father. I'm going to be a philosopher. And he was like, oh. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I can't do that. So I kept going. And then psychology hit. And I remember going like, okay, now this is it. And I went to him with the psychopath, like here it is. And he gave me like literally the same response. So I was always trying to figure out like, you know, what was going on in my family, why people behave the way they behave. So I was always fascinated with it. Mm,
0: That's fascinating. Mm
2: -hmm. Then fast forward in your career. How about residential trauma? What Mm -hmm. was your interest in that area?
1: Well, my last treatment center that I worked at, um, particularly in sex addiction, trauma was almost secondary to the addiction and all uh, towards the end of my stay there there became this shift where trauma was primary and so i had an opportunity to go out to boulder colorado and train under this this new model where you know addiction has this trauma component to it so i started to really flip and so i started seeing everything through the lens of trauma first then addiction so that was a big shift so that's how i started really getting curious about trauma Interesting.
0: And what are, I mean, I feel like that's kind of a, a common belief maybe in the addiction space. Mm. What prompted people to start thinking about it differently?
1: Uh, because what was happening is like once you start to arrest the addiction, you start seeing these other behaviors show up. So, you know, when somebody's in an active addiction, you can't really parse out what's the addiction and what's trauma. Mm-hmm. And when people actually got, started to get healthy and then they start having, got through the withdrawal symptoms, you start seeing these other behaviors start to show up. Mm-hmm. And so you start seeing this, like, common thread where you start seeing people that had trauma and the addiction. And so after a while, after I started seeing, like, addiction, addiction, I started seeing there was always trauma that was coupled with it. So.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Terrence, when you went to that training and you started to see this a little bit differently, how did that change the work that you did with clients?
1: Well, it actually, um, it let me know that I had a steep learning curve first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Because up until that point, particularly with sex addiction, there's, you know, sex addiction. And, you know, when you start thinking about Patrick Carnes, it's based on a behavioral uh, model. Mm -hmm. And so here we are. We're talking about trauma versus just change your behavior. I realized I had a bit of a steep learning curve because I knew that I was going to have to pick up some additional modalities. So it actually was humbling, actually, because I was like, I I am outside of my element. I know how to help change behavior, but this is something totally different. So it was a steep learning curve.
0: That's really interesting. And when seeing people in that space, like understanding trauma a little bit better Mm -hmm. or even working with a client, how does that help them with their view of themselves? Because I would think as someone who's, Outside of that, like with, if you're thinking of a behavior model so much mm-hmm. and it feels like a lot of shame when you say, "Okay, no, there are reasons that this is happening. Mm-hmm. What does that do for someone who's in that situation? Well,
1: it actually gives them the ability to kind of let go of some shame mm. because now it becomes, oh, it's something going on with my brain. Yeah. And there was something that impacted. It, and I have an opportunity to actually change because when you work on, when you just focus on behavioral, the behavioral part, you lose the element of what would happen. Clients come back like, I thought. I knew what I needed to do, or why did I forget what mm. I needed to do? And they didn't know there was this component of the brain that was not allowing them to remember the new changes. So, makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: When you say there is this component that has to do with your brain, what happens in our brain when we experience trauma?
1: So, what happens in the trauma, particularly when you're a child, it overwhelms the brain ability to perceive reality. So, mm. when we have a perceived threat, and that's when we start getting into the autonomic nervous system—fight, flight, or freeze. What happens is, you know, a child's brain is not fully developed. So, a brain is supposed to experience fight, flight, or freeze threat appears, and then once safety is reestablished, the brain comes back down to normal. But what happens when the child is constantly being exposed to trauma, the brain doesn't have a lot of time to come back to homeostasis. And so the brain begins to develop around this continued trauma over and over again. Mm. And so that's for a continuous traumatic event. But if there's a big traumatic event, let's say sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. what happens, that particular event has so much emotional charge around it as a child, the child's brain is not developed enough to figure out where it's supposed to go. Mm. So what the brain will do sometimes is just move it outside of their consciousness so they can function. So they begin to develop behaviors around my inability to regulate
0: but it's unconscious and i may not even yeah it may
1: f- that's how you have some people that when they become adults they start remembering stuff because the brain will start releasing some of that fragmented mm. stuff mm. that they had no conscious memory of it yeah
2: Terrence, is there even a way to like i understand uh, this idea of like suppression sure and it's our brain's ability or capability of like protecting us in some respects like, what's it? Do you know much about what's actually happening? Like, how how does that even like it, it's it's amazing to me
1: that um, we're capable of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I find it fascinating. I mean, of course, we don't know everything about the brain, sure. but it's yeah. so fascinating about its ability to be able to assess that this is too much. Mm-hmm. For this moment in time and so it'll move it. So more times than not, the brain operates from like brain chemistry, like cortisol levels. So mm-hmm. the brain is not necessarily consciously like the brain has a set of eyes. So when it sees these cortisol levels going up more than it can handle, it sends signals like this is too much. Mm. Yes, so that's where you get into that. Maybe sometimes that's the freeze, that's the disassociation, mm-hmm. where it just moves it out of your consciousness. Because if a child has to keep that in the forefront of their consciousness, they wouldn't be able to function. Yeah. So the brain, in its beautiful design, will just move it away. And let the person continue to function. Now, they may pick up some dysfunctional stuff along the way, but they can still function nonetheless.
2: Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. When well, you said that, it almost reminded me of a thermostat. the temperature gets yeah. to a certain point, it just yeah. cuts it, it off. It just
1: cuts it off. Yep. It's the same way. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating.
0: Um, I've been hearing you talk a lot about like childhood trauma and if it's experienced this in your earliest years. Is. Just as an outsider, as a question, like, does it have to be childhood trauma? Could it be adolescent? Could it be early adulthood? Could it be late adulthood? Absolutely.
1: This one way that trauma is defined is too much too soon Mm -hmm. or not enough for a long period of time. So trauma is not just the, I didn't get enough of something. Sometimes trauma is I got too much of something. Yeah, And it's too much too soon for the brain to be able to handle it. So it can happen as an adult. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, but a lot of it is how we... Like if it's childhood trauma, then it impacts.
1: Yes, your brain development. Your brain
0: development, yeah. Because
1: your brain is, I mean, your prefrontal cortex, which is this frontal lobe, on the front end, this is where your task planning, logic, reasoning, mm-hmm. that's not even online. So a child doesn't have ability to mm. make sense and to fully process. So what do shouldn't typically do, they make up stories. Yeah. They make up stories about what happens to them and, and with, their, with them being narcissistic in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Their, their only recourse is says it's something wrong with me. I did something wrong. And so if that's not corrected in their youth, they will just adjust that with, once their brain comes online. They'll just adjust the narrative and they'll keep that something wrong with me. And with good reason, when the autonomic nervous system begins to get set at threat, mm-hmm. the child's brain is more preoccupied with assessing potential dangers than making friends.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, Say more about that. So... When there's a constant threat, whether it be dad yelling or mom hitting, whatever the case may be, the brain in its ability to self preserve is going to constantly look for things that are similar in order to stay safe.
0: Mm. So it's going to
1: start noticing when dad comes home, you know, what, what state of mind at the end. The child has to be able to sense really quick when dad comes in, what's the emotional temperature. So if that's the environment he or she is living in, their autonomic nervous system is set more to assess that. So they go to school, it'll be harder for them to focus. Mm -hmm. And so that child, if they're not careful, will walk away and say, I wasn't good in school. I could never focus. I couldn't make friends. People wouldn't like me. And the truth of the matter is their autonomic nervous system wasn't in a calm enough place to free up space to make friends. Their autonomic nervous system has been hijacked by, okay, Johnny wants to be friends with me, but why does he want to be friends with me? Is he safe? Am I going to be... be- so now they're processing all this safety stuff when Johnny just wants to hang out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so part of that narrative is one part of it is the fantasy of it must be my fault. But then some of it is their autonomic nervous system has been so hijacked, they just don't have the space or the bandwidth to even connect. Mm.
2: Wow. Mm-hmm. Terrence, that reminds me. It's like survival is more important than connection. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. So if you if you
2: have to, because of experiences or growing up in certain households, mm-hmm. if survival's not real guaranteed, mm-hmm. uh, then I could see how connection could
1: be an afterthought. Yes. It's not a priority. No, it's not. A uh, safety is. And then I will learn how to connect dysfunctionally. Mm. Yeah. I will, I've will. i learned that vulnerability may not be the best thing for me, so I'm going to connect with you, but I'm connect with you in a way where... It's going to have this transactional component to it. Mm -hmm. I still have needs I have to get met. So instead of me just us having this very free relationship, now I'm going to connect with you, but I'm going to try to siphon some off of you to get my needs met without asking for it. Mm -hmm. Because to Mm -hmm. ask for it to be vulnerable could mean danger. That's it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think so much of this conversation and so much of the work that I have done even in my own life and around some of the trauma that I have walked through, it just feels so Mm permission-giving. It feels kind of like, oh, of course. Yes. Where there was such a a propensity to carry so much shame or Mm -hmm. to say it's my fault, you know, to step back and say, well, of course a three-year-old couldn't make sense of that. Yes. Of course that's why you're acting out in this way. Um, And so I just even throughout this conversation, are you saying like, Yeah, it makes sense that you sought survival over connection or whatever.
1: And I would say the shame is even a part of it. Because shame is really about this idea that I'm going to lose connection. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So if you knew this part, if you knew something about me, then you wouldn't want to be around me. So even to come out of that with that shame of, I'm afraid someone will not like me, I would say that's normal too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What are some of the other misconceptions that people carry maybe incorrectly or from trauma experiencing trauma then that you've been able to help people unpack around um, trauma that, in the
1: brain trauma is only limited to war mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. the big one or my trauma is not as big as yours or i had a great family mm. um and but when we dig through dig through the information you find that typically they got too much of something yeah. either they got too much nurture or they got too much challenge so they tend to think of trauma as almost physical or mm-hmm. this really like big event i usually can uh describe it as smith and wesson the smith family is the one that's explosive you can see the uh, the, the dysfunction and then you had the wesson family which looks good on the outside but yeah. then inside is all this emotional manipulation. So mm. they don't really understand that emotional manipulation or emotional abuse is a is a trauma. trauma. Mm-hmm.
0: That's really good. I heard someone say recently that a dysfunctional family and a loving family aren't mutually exclusive. <laughs> and I felt like that was so permission giving mm-hmm. because so often we say, "Well, my family was really loving and I grew up in a good home." Yeah, yeah. But also, there yeah. could have been a ton of dysfunction yes. that is impacting you. And it's about naming it, not blaming. Right. And, yeah. then,
1: and I, whenever I work with a client, if they start trying to blame a parent, I usually stop right there. Like, this is not about blaming. This is mm-hmm. about just the truth. What happened? Yeah. yeah. The blame is counterproductive. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Terrence, um, kind of thinking about the way the brain operates and how the brain, in some respects, keeps us stuck, but also protects us. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Why does trauma stick with us so long?
1: Um, it, it, if it, left it, untreated. If left untreated, because if particularly if it's done at an early age, the brain begins to be developed around it. And then we develop all these behaviors and all these things. So we begin to see the world through the lens of the trauma. Mm. And so one of the other reasons why it sticks with us so long is that After a while, it becomes so unconscious. I tell clients all the time, anything that we practice over and over again, the brain will automate it. Mm, (laughs) It'll automate it. And then once it automates, it moves it to your unconscious so it can free up space to do other things. So over time, trauma starts to look like personality.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: once it starts to look like personality, it's harder to catch. So it can be pervasive for generations without anybody Mm. catching it because anything you practice, whether it be good or bad, will just hide in your unconscious. Mm
0: -hmm. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. I can think of even just that becomes rules of your family. Like, we're really protective of one another or Mm -hmm. we're really private. We don't let people into our business. Right. That can become rules or defining personality traits of a whole family Family. that's based in trauma.
1: Yeah, and if we don't start to like, question like is this even applicable now mm. like for my culture my parents were very big on you just deal with it yeah mm-hmm. well they came from a culture where they didn't have any recourse mm-hmm. yeah. but you know i grew up in the 80s there was a recourse so that didn't apply and so often we just kind of pass things down from generation to generation and we don't stop and go like does this even apply anymore mm-hmm. so that's how we can kind of live within a culture
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Friends, I hope you're enjoying this limited series from the trauma experts at OnSite. We believe that the events of your past don't have to hold you back from the future you want to live. One of the ways we support people in addressing the effects of trauma is through our digital offerings through OnSite Online. Our emotional health masterclass, Right Sizing the Wrongs, will help you understand how the pain of your past might still be affecting you today and offer you a way forward towards the hope and healing you deserve. This seven-part video series led by on-site clinician Carlos Martinez will equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to navigate the complexities of trauma and begin to heal. When you sign up for this Emotional Health Masterclass, you receive 60-plus minutes of clinical expertise, an interactive learning environment, access to our online community, and an accompanying workbook. Learn more at onsiteworkshops.com slash trauma. And as a podcast listener, you can get an additional 15% off your purchase when you use the code TREATINGTRAUMA at the checkout.
2: Terrence, I was thinking about, you know, someone who experiences a significant traumatic event, maybe an accident of some kind, versus someone that grows up in a really dysfunctional, mm-hmm. like, environment, so it's more long-term. Sure. When it comes to, you know, an event versus a situation, how is that different, even just like the way it impacts somebody, and Mm -hmm. then maybe even like, does that
1: change the approach for treatment? Mm -hmm. Um, In my opinion, not very much, because they still need to have a corrective experience. And I'm not talking about just the EMDR brain spotting. Mm -hmm. I mean, because even if it was episodic, they're still walking around probably with some hiding hyper- hypervigilance not feeling safe and so even coming here and having an experience can be corrective the brain still operated the same way it just wasn't over a long period of time so a lot of time they're going to i'm going to treat them very similar to someone who had long term because they probably hadn't had a good night's sleep <laughs> they're mm-hmm. probably not eating well and mm-hmm. so to be the land and have someone who can be attuned to them it's going to be just as productive
2: that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. so it's almost like we have to assess what their symptoms are their experience and help them get to a better place so it doesn't really matter um you know was it a isolated event or
1: mm-hmm. more of a, a long-term yeah. thing because if it if, if it's epi- even if it's episodic and it was bad enough they're probably having a nightmarish existence. And so to mm. come here and be, be offered some peace and some entombment and some acceptance, mm-hmm. man, goes, goes a long way. That's
0: mm. great. Mm. That is good. I feel like, so often when we talk about trauma, it's something from the past that feels really present. Yeah. How is trauma stored in our brains? Is there... it's, it's,
1: it's stored in the amygdala, okay. which is very hard to access. So I could... I could talk about a trauma from this part, which is very intellectual with no mm-hmm. emotion attached the to it. The front of
0: your brain. Yeah. yeah.
1: But the amygdala is where you start getting into these um, these modalities like brain spotting EMDR that can activate it. And what it does is it uncouples or uh, thaws out a, a trauma, moves it to the forefront of your brain, to your conscious brain, and allow you to process it with your adult brain. Mm. So that's, that's how brain spotting EMDR works is to actually activate it. Taris, how about like, you know, what would
2: you say are some of the day to day effects that people can experience, you know, from trauma? Like, how does it impact their daily lives?
1: Um, it could, it could show up as, um, it can show up in their bodies. Um, mm. So you can, you, you experience uh, some people have irritable bowel syndrome where they have denying their emotion and they'll just sit in their bodies and their stomachs. Um, in terms of practical things, one of the things I struggle with with clients, and I don't say I, not them, but Uh, One of the hallmarks I see of trauma victims are they're hyper autonomous, Mm. not autonomous, but hyper, meaning that their first go to is I'll figure it out Mm -hmm. and their second and third and fourth go to is I'll figure it out because they can't trust. And Mm -hmm. so that's one of the big pieces of them not being able to trust and they'll struggle with intimacy. So that's one of the big things that I'll see. They'll continue to stru- uh, struggle with intimacy like throughout their lives.
2: Wow. So affect their physical body, affect their relationships. And when you say that they can't trust, is it
1: typically others, themselves, or both? It's all, it's, it's both. I mean, remember, if it, particularly if it happens in childhood, and we can even talk about adulthood. If somebody is sexually abused,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it, it does a number on their ability to trust themselves. Mm-hmm. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, Trauma, what makes trauma so dicey is that when it's not processed, there's not a whole lot of overlaps. For for example, if I experience something that's very similar but not totally similar, remember, my brain is all about self-preservation and it's going to remember features. So if I smell something that's similar, if I see something that's similar, it's going to kick my brain back into that traumatic moment because my brain is trying to motivate me to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so it's it, sometimes it can be very hard to distinguish what's true and what's false yeah wow
2: yeah it's it's i know it's a good thing evolutionary yes. but it's kind of frustrating sometimes <laughs> yeah. that your brain's so concerned with protecting you yeah. and not as concerned with you know joy or yeah. connection mm-hmm. or even like growing and thriving like yeah. it just it's all about safety
1: well, and just from my opinion i think it's because of, of where we have come as a culture i mean this stuff is actually um um it's prehistoric i mean it was about you know the dinosaurs around the corner just don't go around the corner okay go get safe and we hang out we have fun we're able to restore homostasis but now we live in cultures where trauma is happening repeatedly and so we don't have a chance to return back to that like calm safe place makes sense
0: will you say more about that Uh, of we live in a culture where trauma is happening repeatedly what happens when you have a childhood propensity for that and then grow up in a time when that's continuing to happen
1: well some of the studies show that if i have experienced a trauma in my childhood i am more susceptible for ptsd and my ability to be resilient will be somewhat diminished Mm
0: -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. wow that's super interesting Mm -hmm. we have touched on it a couple different times but what are the different parts of your brain and how do they relate to a traumatic experience
1: so we, we have this most primitive part, which is in charge of like breathing and respiration. Mm-hmm. And so when something threatened happened, that's where your body's getting ready, prepared. And then we have this other part, which is like they call it a mammalian brain. This part is the limbic system. This is where fight, flight, and freeze. So when if a saber tooth tiger came in here, which would be really weird because they don't exist <laughs> anymore. Um, this is the part of the brain that will get activated. And then, of course, here, this was the last part of our brain to develop. Mm-hmm. So this is frontal lobe, prefrontal cortex. This is logic and thinking. So if a tiger comes in here, guess what? I don't need this part of my brain. Matter of fact, it actually will slow me down. So this part goes offline. Okay. Limbic system takes over. It gets me to safety. Now, once I'm able to assess that safety, breathing, <sighs> this reengages. Okay. And then I can say things like, hey, did you see the sides of his teeth?
2: That's right. Yeah. That's right.
0: So are you able to, because the front part of your brain is turned off,
1: mm-hmm.
0: are you able to grab details? Yes. Like if you experience a traumatic event and then after if I find safety or I found grounding, yeah. can I then recall the details of that? Or yes. okay.
1: Your brain takes all it in. It happens so fast, the brain will take that in, but this'll go off like it'll go off. Yeah. Yeah. But it'll still capture some of that some of that data for you.
0: Mm-hmm. I just wondered if there's like a correlation of people like who can't, I don't know, make that connection or have like fully understand the depth of whatever it was well, consciously, I, but then it obviously it's impacting yeah, you.
1: Yeah, sometimes physically that, or emotionally. Yeah, sometimes that's where the trauma will, but just kind of hide out of. But yeah. the, the good thing about this work is we can show clients how to get to that rest, peace, joy spot.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, so they can learn to experience that, and so they can actually heal the brain because we know now the brain is plastic. So. And that's where your meditation comes in and your yoga and your exercise and all these different modalities that allow you to like use your breath to ground. Mm. Yoga is a great modality. And so you can actually move yourself into those very serene, tranquil spots and widen it. Because that's one of the things. That's what makes trauma so difficult. It makes their ability to tolerate you know, normal life events. They don't have the bandwidth. So you'll see a mm. client come in here and they don't have a lot of like, frustration tolerance. Yeah. So, what we do is help them widen that sucker out a little bit so they can handle more stuff.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Terrence, you kind of talked about, you know, like the rational part of our brain going offline when we experience trauma. I think other things in the body go offline. Oh yeah. So it's not just in the head, like mm-hmm. there's your, and I think that's why people who are constantly stressed out and sort of hyper alert, like mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but they even had sometimes have a hard time digesting food.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. because uh, it, it, When we talk about the autonomic nervous system, I know we're talking about it from a kind of dysfunctional perspective. But in a healthy perspective, when you start thinking about freeze, freeze is just rest and digest. Mm -hmm. and when we all do it. We're doing it right now. We do it before Mm. we we go to bed. We do it when we get done eating. But what happens with trauma, sometimes when the first go-to is always going to be to fight flight. And when that can't be accomplished, we go down and we crash. And if we're still living in that kind of autonomic nervous system place, yeah, it can be very difficult for us to digest because mm. a lot of trauma victim, and I can say a good chunk of them, they're not in their bodies. Mm. They're primarily up here. In their brains. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about fight, flight, or freeze? Because I sure. think it's it's a topic that we all took a Psych 101 sure, class sure. and know, like, these are the three responses. Mm-hmm. But being in the on-site space, I think I have learned the nuances of it so much more. And I think, once again, found mm-hmm. more empathy for myself because mm-hmm. it is an automatic response. I don't choose whether I mm-hmm. fight, flight or freeze, or mm-hmm. even appease. Or what's the other one? Like the, like, fawn. Like I've heard all these additional ones. Yeah, so, fawn is to kind of
1: uh, get along and get along. <laughs> get along and get along, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, why, if it being an automatic response, mm-hmm. can you talk to a little bit about, like, How does our body choose between those three or does it choose or what is...
1: You know what? Nobody really knows. All we know is that the route is our first response is going to be fight or run. Okay. And then if we can't do those two will go to freeze now for some reason some of us and we're all different some of us get stuck in that fight place some Mm -hmm. of us get stuck in that run place and some of it gets stuck in that disassociative place so that's what we see when clients show up they're stuck the anxiety is the fight fight freeze well the the, the flight Mm. so when you see so anxiety panic disorder rage that's going to be in your fight flight Mm-hmm. uh disassociation depression and those things that was going to be down in that dorsal place
0: and is it associated with the one that maybe was the most effective for us
1: yeah it, depending on how that how your brain assessed that danger what was going to keep them most safe for some you may have two siblings one may fight back and one mm-hmm. may just shut down
2: yeah mm-hmm. i've always found that really interesting and Like what you just said, I think it has a lot to do with experience. But then I'm like, man, is that just part of someone's personality?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even right now, somebody dangerous coming here. Some of us are going to run out of here. Some of them like, hey, I'm going to fight. Some of us are going to freeze. Like, we we don't know. All of us will be different in that regard.
0: And I think what I would do is different than what I think I would do. Like, I think I've been in situations where afterward I thought, oh, I responded in a very (laughs) different way than Mm -hmm. I thought
1: I would. Yes. Because your brain will assess very quickly, like, what's Mm. the best course of survival. And even though you're like, no, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to run. But if your brain assists like, no, probably punching him will be our best shot. That's probably what you're going to do.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense.
0: Okay. This is a lot of information. If someone's listening to this thinking, wow, this feels really heavy. Am I just doomed because I had a traumatic experience? Like, I know that you at Milestones do a lot of work to help people look at the past and to find healing and mm-hmm. can we heal our brains and what does that look like
1: well yes you can heal your brain uh with some of the modalities of you know meditation uh emdr brain spotting but i like to tell clients like it is hope i, I say the, the first chapter of your life was decided against your will and what do you want the second chapter to look like so mm. i try to empower like you get to decide you know mm. before you've been guided by what someone did to you and the trauma in and of itself Okay, now can we start crafting a vision about what you want? And you get to decide. So it it gets kind of spun on his head about how can we start building some excitement? How can we build something for the client to really stick through it? Because trauma work can be exhausting. Yeah. And so starting to get them a vision of what their life could look like within reason, a lot of times get them excited. So there is hope. Yeah. Or I wouldn't be doing this.
0: Yeah, (laughs) totally.
2: (laughs) Now, I had a, a very similar question. you know, my question for you, Terrence, mm-hmm. if someone was listening to this mm-hmm. and they, it sort of like hit them really hard because, mm-hmm. wow, I never really knew, you know, that my childhood experiences have impacted me the way they did. And I can relate to a lot of what's being discussed. What would you recommend would be like a first step for somebody that's just like gaining awareness that maybe trauma is running their life more than they anticipated?
1: Mm-hmm. I would have- probably tell them they should look up a good trauma therapist mm-hmm. um, and, and have a conversation with them about the trauma, I would get on the internet. There's a lot of uh, literature around trauma. I would try to get educated as much as I can around the subject of trauma. But the big thing, I would get and call a therapist immediately someone who has some trauma background mm-hmm. who can start to like just do some psycho ed initially and do some assessment because some trauma work can be done in outpatient basis. And as we know, mm-hmm. some of it has to be done in a treatment setting. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So, would you say, Terence, if with good trauma treatment, do you think the way the nervous system responds can change? Relationships can change, Absolutely. like the way you experience life can change. I mean, do you feel like you've seen people make like full recoveries in this? Yes, respect?
1: and when, when when I think of the word recovery, is I look at what we do as a springboard to get them started. You know, mm. I challenge clients that we have to consider. Radically changing everything. It's like, how do we how do we do food? How do we do exercise? How do we do spirituality? How do we do breathing? Like, because trauma impacts all of that. It it impacts the mind, body and spirit. So how do we begin to develop a robust life that helps all of it? So mm-hmm. I try to, to get clients to really look at this from several different lenses instead of saying, "Oh, I did my trauma work, so now I'm ready to go back to work." Yeah, uh, it's actually bigger than that. And so we try to do a good job of like really getting them to understand how it's impacted them, to motivate them, to make some really tangible changes in their lives.
0: Mm-hmm. It feels really holistic. Like yeah, it's absolutely. not just one thing; it's mm-hmm. all the things. Yeah,
1: because trauma is holistic.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it impacts you holistically <laughs> yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. It sure does. Um, I'm wondering if you had like two or three minutes with someone, what would you want them to walk away with and know Mm -hmm. about how trauma impacts our brain and ourselves holistically?
1: I would want them to know that it's not, it's not your personality. You're not flawed. You're not broken. Um, Something happened to you, something real happened to you. And it changed the very way your brain was developed. And, Mm you can not only heal from that, you can actually flourish. That was probably be the thing I would want to tell them. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. I think healing from something like that can be... It can provide someone a rich life that they might not experience yeah. if they never
1: had. They may not even have context for it. So yeah. that's why I'm, I think it's really good sometimes to come to residential settings like this and they can see the calmness, the tranquility, mm-hmm. and start saying like, whoa, I've, I can actually create this in my own life. I'm very big on like what what you experience here in treatment. Can you, let's just re- recreate it when you go home. So even coming to a place like this starts the vision in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: Cause I feel like when you grow up in dysfunction or you experience dysfunction, dysfunction starts to feel the safest. Yeah. I remember that in my early childhood, we my parents had foster care. Mm-hmm. And I remember someone saying to us, your life Them getting told that they are loved Mm. and it being a safe space, that's the uncomfortable part. Yes. That's not like that's not their normal. And so it's uncomfortable for them. Yes. And I just I mean, I was probably like 10 years old, but that's like in my brain to think, okay, my secure normal feels unsafe to them. Yes.
1: And so trauma and dysfunction has its own rhythm. And it and we get calibrated to that rhythm. Yeah. And so when we come to residential treatment where we have this horses and calm, that's a different rhythm. And so that's why when we get clients here for a week or two, they might act out just because it's what you described. They're not calibrated to that that rhythm. And so Mm -hmm. it takes a while for them to kind of level out. And so that we also tell them when they discharge, hey, be careful, you're going back into that type of rhythm. So yeah, that's exactly what you're describing.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned if someone is kind of starting to do this work or feels drawn into this, are there specific resources that you would suggest for someone who wants to learn more about the brain and trauma and kind of this whole topic. Cause I think we didn't have enough time to really dig into it. And I think it is a visual I, I, thing.
1: I think the, the, the book that's out now that I would recommend that I do recommend is the body keeps a score. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't go wrong with that book. Um, so I would say that book particularly because it's an easier read when you start getting too far in the brain and I'll start getting academic and they'll just throw the book in the garbage. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that was one of the books that was the most like empathetic to me. Yeah, of course, like mm-hmm. of course this makes sense. Yes, and mm-hmm. it just starts to show up. And I think I kind of I kind of joke about it because I feel like that title comes up all the time. It's yeah. so I think like well the body keeps the yeah. <laughs> like, score.
1: Uh, okay. uh, Peter Levine is really big too. Yeah. Um, Peter Levine is really big on like somatic work about mm-hmm. how the uh, trauma gets lodged in the body and up. Um, Body Keeps the Score alludes to that as well. But yeah. um, some of the Peter Levine's books is it's it's an easier read even than, than Body Keeps the Score.
0: That's good. Mm-hmm.
1: That's really good. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. If you or someone you love is struggling with the negative effects of unaddressed trauma, the safety, community, and expert care of the residential experience at Milestones may offer the individualized help and healing you need. Milestones is a -a one-of-a-kind, holistic, and specialized residential trauma treatment experience, serving individuals adversely affected by symptoms of unaddressed trauma, including anxiety, depression, codependency, and PTSD. This innovative and integrative program offers a variable length of stay from 30 to 90 days, specific to individual needs. When life feels like too much, Milestones offers a refuge and a place of healing. Learn more at milestones at onsite.com. Also, we'd love to help you explore the right option for you. You can connect with our admissions team for a confidential call at 1-800-341-7432 or email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com. You deserve this.